going to be an interesting show tonight. Derek and I um, don't have a plan. We're just going to wing it. This could be a five-minute show. This could be an hour-and-a-half, two-hour show. Maybe we'll Joe Rogan it. I'm not sure what's going to happen. I'm not sure you know, what will pop into our minds, but it's going to be a very casual car conversation. I think the last one we had with just the hosts, we kind of got a little heated over the BMW. Derek sent out some pictures of it. There's still some discussion, a lot of talk about how. Heck yeah, I texted pictures of it today even. Yeah. Yeah, but your pictures were wrong because they went to 2050, and that 2050 BMW sure looked like it was a gasoline, petrol-powered, emissions-emitting vehicle, which we know won't happen in California. Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a second. Wait a second. What year? 2050. The 2050? Didn't that go to 2050? Yeah, but it's it's clearly a steam radiator from an old house on a BMW chassis. So they're talking about going to steam, bro. Oh, well, I guess that would really improve it. But the 2030 really kind of looks like a... Um, that Lincoln waterfall grill we just, we just got rid of too. Yes, that it does. That That's it does. one thing I guess I can say it's car related. I am so glad Lincoln has decided to name their cars again. I know it's a couple of year old thing and restarted with the continental and now we have the navigator and the aviator and I don't care. I got so confused with MKX, MKZ, MK, um, S, MLS. I don't. I can't remember what they were. I never knew which model was which, and I still can't identify them. You know, we have a Cadillac in the driveway, and I could kind of work with CTS and ATS, SRX. I could kind of work with those, and I kind of got them figured out. But when we now we're to the XT4 and the XT6 and CT6, and I'm, I'm lost again. Can we just go back and put names on the damn cars? It's as bad as those BMW people calling, oh, it's an E34, it's an E36, it's an, what is it, Q38. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. To put a damn name on it. I, I'm horrible with people names. I'm good with car names. There's my first little rant. Yeah, yeah, I pretty much agree. I'm trying to think. I guess it's an in. But if you go back to the earliest days of the automobile, I mean, you had... You didn't really have names. I mean, you had the Model A, the Model B in the Ford lineup, the Model A, the Model B, you know, the Model C, so on and so forth, Model F, blah, blah, blah. In a lot of the car companies, you had numeric designations, especially with like the Overlands, Model 69s, Model 90s, Model 83s, uh, 83B, all these different models that just had a, a number, sometimes alphanumeric designation rather than actual complete names. But you knew even using the number, you know, Packer did that. You know, they had the 733 and the 833 and the 834 and the 120 whatever. They had numbers, but you knew the bigger the number, the better the car. It was higher up there. You can complain the same thing about Mercedes and you can complain the same thing about BMW with their numbering, but I know that a five series is a nicer car than a three or four series. And I know that a, you know, eight series is better than a six series or a Mercedes. You know that the 600 is a nicer car than the 300 
Uh, granted, you get a little confusing on if it's a C300 or an S300 or a C400 or the number still kind of makes sense. I do wish Mercedes would go back to their old way of numbering with engine displacement, things like that. Ford Model A, Model B, that made sense to me too because Model A was last year's car, Model B is kind of the, the newer model. It kind of made sense. But when you throw a whole bunch of alphabet soup out there, you know, it's like the engineers got up in the morning and had alphabets and this is what we named them. I'm a little confused with Infinity. It made sense in the beginning, but now that there's so many models, I don't know. I guess the Q60 has replaced the G35. You know, I'm kind of lost there. I just wish they would go back to names. That's one of my little bitches, one of my caveats, but I'm never going to win that argument. It's all, I mean, modern cars, so nobody cares. Well, I don't care. Shouldn't say nobody cares, but I don't really care. It's modern cars. Who cares? <laughs> I've hit my, I've hit a little rant. I can keep ranting. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, as he said, it'd be a five minute show. So there you go. There's five minutes of John ranting. Nah, I was driving down the road. I almost took a video of it. I don't believe in fix it tickets. Do you believe in fix it tickets? Ooh, wow. That's a great question. This is, this is going to be an interesting show because I have some topics that are thousands of miles away from a fix it ticket question. <laughs> wow. That is a good question. I've never, I guess I've never been posed with that question. I've never had a fix it ticket in my life. I try to keep my car safe so I don't get a fix it ticket. I will say that, and maybe I don't know how every state does it. So that may be a problem. I know how it's done in Michigan. I spent most of my life in Michigan and knew a lot of police officers in Michigan that. No, it's not because I was always in trouble with the law. I just knew them from my mom and dad being friends with different law officers, things like that. In Michigan and every state's like this, I don't know. If you got a fix-it ticket, you had a certain amount of time to make the repair, go in, prove that the repair was made, and then it didn't cost you. And there was no fee. There was no anything behind it. Uh, in, In that case, I kind of agree with it because... Why should you be driving around with burnout headlights or burnout brake lights, especially in the case, let's say, especially in the case of brake lights. If you don't have brake lights, you go to stop and you're not signaling in any way that you're stopping and someone rear ends you in most states. I Again, I don't know every state law, but in most states, whoever is the person found to be the person who caused the rear end accident, in other words, the person hitting the person from the rear is the one that typically gets the ticket because they were not driving safely. Now, is there a way to prove that those taillights were out because now you've punched both of them out when you hit that car? No. So in that kind of case, I believe strongly in a fix-it ticket, if you couldn't tell by that rant. You know, that's why dash cams have become so prevalent because of what you said there, and, and that gets into a whole nother traffic thing, is brake lights weren't working and you rear-ended somebody, the, the dash cam's going to prove that. But if you're in one of the big major metropolitan areas, another big thing is you're stuck in traffic and the guy in front of you decides to back into you and now it looks like you rear-ended them. Uh, you know, I think you could really get into the black box on computers and prove or disprove that now. You know, I think since we have the chismal or the center high mounted stop lamp or the third brake light, if you rear-ended somebody and all their brake lights were out, you could still, in most cases, prove that the chismal was out also. I was behind 
a pickup the other day, and Alabama's weird. Technically, in Alabama, you only have to have one functioning taillight and one functioning brake light to be legal. I don't know why they're selling me the center one and the, the right one. You know, it's not illegal in Alabama. They, you know, every new car I've bought comes with three sets of taillights. You know, I'm following the pickup, and it's one of the older Chevys, you know, what are late 90s or whatever. And the vans are prone to this, too. The taillights dim and dim over time. The only way to fix it is to replace the unit. Uh, I had to deal with this on the van at Barber's, and they never cared. And you can barely tell the taillights come on in that. But I just find it inexcusable that you drive without a headlight or you drive without uh, a taillight. And you, te- you you tell somebody, and they go, oh, okay. They don't care about it until the cop stops them and writes them a fix-it ticket. And in the world we live in now, cops aren't stopping people for that because – I'm not going to get shot, I'll be honest, over or get into a police chase or anything like that because of a taillight. I have a big problem with fix-it tickets. First, I don't believe there should be any leniency. It's a ticket. It's a X number dollar fine. I don't care if you didn't know your brake light wasn't working. The law in most states that I have, and I've had to take driver's tests in many states, you're supposed to do a precursory inspection of your vehicle before you drive it, verify all the lights are working, etc., most cars today will even tell you if you have a tail light out or a headlight out or something to that extent. You need a ticket, a hundred bucks. I don't care. Something that's going to impact you that, oh, I don't want to get that ticket when the guy at the gas station's being nice to you and say, hey, you know, you got a brake light out. And I think it should be exponentially higher per bulb because, you know, you'll have the it, you, going back to the old, what is it, uh, 1057, 1050 bulbs, you have a left one, you have a right one, you have a center one. There's three bulbs there that can burn out. If you've let two of those bulbs go out, your ticket doubles. You have two taillights not functioning. It's a safety hazard to me, headlight or taillights. And then I read one this morning that uh, a local community here has decided to enforce a muffler law. You have to have a muffler on your vehicle. Now, I live in Alabama, and and the mufflers aren't aren't on every vehicle. Uh, We don't have emissions testing or any of that, so we're not, you know, most people aren't worried about that. It's a subjective noise ordinance. ordinance. The vehicle can't be excessively loud. What is excessively loud? Uh, Is it excessively loud to a Mercedes SL or a Camry, or is it excessively loud next to a Lamborghini uh, Performante? Two different vehicles. Is it excessively loud next to a you know Mustang GT with the three thousand dollar variable exhaust? You know it also says you can't have cutouts. There's cars now with factory cutouts in them. Okay, that's the subjective part of the law. It also says the muffler can't let out any smoke. I'm oh whoa whoa where <laughs> where is this? <laughs> it's an excessive amount of smoke, I guess. First of all. It's not really the muffler's job to control the smoke that's coming out of the motor. Am I wrong there, Derek? Uh, no, no, you are not wrong. Isn't that going back to my emission system? And the way, say, anything built in the last 10 years, we'll go Alabama, anything built in the last 20 years, it's really not a lot of smoke coming out of the tailpipe. If you have smoke coming out of the tailpipe, I think the ticket's the least, least of your worries. Mm-hmm. They're saying they can fine you. Because a piece of equipment's not doing a job that that piece of equipment was never designed to do. 
I, and I find that the most ridiculous thing. Who, who, who the heck wrote this law? Who the heck was consulted? Now, is it actually, it actually words that the actual wording is the muffler, not the exhaust system? Nope. They're only speaking of the muffler. Uh, see if I can find this. This goes to something that we, I think, have mentioned on the show before and maybe skirted around a little bit here and there. But these are the laws that are going to start. Well, actually, we had a, a pretty lengthy discussion on some of this with one of the laws that happened in Texas. I think it was last year. You know, these are the laws that we're going to start seeing written that are becoming known as the clunker laws. In other words, they're trying to write laws that will get you tickets, fines, fees, whatever you want to call them, when you have a car that is basically, they know, wearing out 10 to 15 years old, let's call it maybe 20, and they don't want that car on the road anymore. They want you to have a new car that's emission-friendly, all of that, and I think we talked about it on the episode with when we were talking about those laws. Correct me if I'm wrong, John. I think it was Texas. It's just going to hurt people because we don't have a society that everyone can afford the new car. People have to have older vehicles because of their income bracket. And it's the way they are able to live their life, get to work, get to where they need to go, do what they need to do. And they might not have that extra money to make those minor or major repairs right away to make sure that car's on the road and, and meeting these crazy clunker laws. It's it's kind of ridiculous. I'm I'm not a fan of them. I'm sorry, I'm not. And I agree with you in that. And I don't think that's the actual reason behind this because the town in Alabama, it's a really small town. The muffler that they actually have pictured in there is a one of the adjustable baffle mufflers on a Honda. So it's you know it's it's an aftermarket muffler, which say you're in California is most likely illegal or very good chance it's illegal. It's more at going after the kids and giving a reason to pull the kids over. But again, like you said, we're giving them an inch there. All of a sudden, this one little town in Alabama starts enforcing this with such vagueness to the law, anybody can be stopped. And then you get into, it's going to creep somewhere else and it's going to creep somewhere else because, okay, if nobody fights it in this this community, the next community can take it and say, hey, the statute over here stuck. Why doesn't it stick here? Again, it, it's just one of those things that I said annoyed me. It's one of those stupid automotive laws. Like you said, it it could be interpreted as a clunker law. Thinking back to being a teenager at one point in my life, it's an excuse to have a reason to pull somebody over and look for something else wrong with the vehicle. Because the, so the solution, or you get the ticket for the exhaust, it's a fix-it ticket with no monetary penalty for a certain number of days, but it never said the number of days or it never said the amount of money that the monetary penalty would be. But you fix the problem, then you find a police officer. So I guess the police officer in this town, and I'm, it's a small enough town, they might only have two. You find them in their speed trap, pull, pull, stop them, get them out of their car for them to hear your newly installed muffler. And then they sign your ticket that it's past them. Then you go to the courthouse and have the ticket dismissed. 
big inefficiency. Well, and, and here's another question. And I think I've told this, I may have told this story on the show. We decided to go to the New York State Fair to see a certain artist perform a concert. Of course, when you do that, that's the late night show. So you're getting out of the fair when it's closing. So around midnight, 1230 in the morning, get in the car, and then you're waiting in the long line of traffic to get out. You get out on the highway, and I'm from Ohio. I grew up in Michigan, right? I don't know Albany, New York, the greater Albany area. We get on the freeway, and all of a sudden, I realize I'm pretty low on gas. And within the first couple miles, my gas light comes on. Well, we all have smartphones, so get on the smartphone, plug in gas station, find the closest one, boom, hit directions, takes me up to an exit. I get off the exit. There's not a gas station in sight because they had leveled the gas station. It had been closed and they leveled it and the map hadn't updated. So we drive to the next closest one. Well, it's so late at night, they're closed. They don't have 24-hour pumps. I have no idea where I am. No idea. We're like, all right, well, let's try the next closest one. Same thing. It's so late at night. They're closed. No 24-hour pumps. Well, as I'm leaving that one, in the parking lot across the street, I see two cops sitting, talking to each other. Like you just said, John, you know, you're supposed to go find them, pull up, talk to them, have your ticket, you know, cleared, whatever. Well, in this case, I'm trying to find a gas station that's open. Who's going to know that? A police officer, right? So I'm going to, I pull up. I don't pull all the way. Again, I grew up multiple friends that are police officers and were police officers. I don't pull right up to the car because I know better. You never pull right up next to the car. That's, don't do it. I pulled up a safe distance, flashed my lights, signaling that I need help. I knew what to expect. You know, they were going to drive their cars, one on either side of my car so that they could see what's going on, have their spotlights on me, perfectly fine. They then get out of their vehicles, put their hands on their guns, and yell at me to not get out of the vehicle. You know, I basically said, I don't plan on it. I don't plan on getting out of the vehicle. Explain myself. And then they proceed to tell me where the next closest gas station that is open uh, will be. Word for word, this is a quote. One of the two officers looks at me and says, you shouldn't roll up on a couple cops like that. Now, I let it go and I drove away. John, like you just said, you get a fix-it ticket in this town and they're saying you have to go find the cop and he's sitting in a parking lot and you drive up to talk to him, especially this day and age. I'm, I'm lucky this was probably six years ago now that this happened, maybe even longer. Can you imagine just driving up on a cop today and kind of not, I mean, I wouldn't feel comfortable doing it. And I don't think that cop would feel very comfortable with somebody just pulling up like that today. So, I mean, that's that's another thing that I think needs to be thought about because that's just, that's not very smart. I would have been hesitant to do it six years ago, but, and I know what you mean. The other thing is, is 90% of the time that I see a, not insulting them because 90% of the time though, that I see a cop off the side of the road or in a position that I would pull up and say, hey, will you sign off on this fix-it ticket? They're most likely on break. They're eating lunch yep. or I respect them. They're at a job. And the, the worst thing you can do to me when I had a paid job is interrupt my break. You know, this is my time. It's not your time anymore. You know, those guys work hard enough. Right. I'm not saying I'm not trying to knock the police in any way. 
even like you say, six years ago, it was things were starting to get bad. I mean, even back six years ago, there were a lot of incidents happening, uh, a lot of tension. We're also raised in this country oftentimes, and, and hopefully parents can still teach their children this, trying not to get political, obviously, but you know, police are public servants. They're there to help us. And we should be able to go up to them and have them feel safe and have ourselves feel safe. You know, it's tough right now. I'm not trying to knock any police officer because they do a job that I thought about doing and I don't do because it just didn't fit for me. Getting off of that topic, going back to these clunker laws, they're just not what is going to be useful for our country. Now that I've politicized the show and steered in a totally different direction than your conversation was going to go, what were one of those topics that you wanted to be 180 degrees off of what I was talking about? Uh, Well, I actually had another traffic one if we wanted to talk about that. It doesn't involve police. Well, it, it does, but it doesn't involve like what we just had to talk about. I think with what you were talking about and some things with fines for your headlights out, just automatic rather than a fix it ticket. My big beef is people that cause accidents on the roadways and are 100% at fault. It wasn't some freak situation, anything like that, but just someone who is recklessly driving, causing an accident that causes any type of backup on any roadway, they have to close the roadway, That whatever it is, I think whoever was at fault in that accident should be fined and there should be a fee schedule for the amount of time that there is a backup or a road closure because you caused an accident. I understand the type of accident you're describing. I don't know. I honestly don't know if I could get on board with that because Very few people intentionally cause an accident. I mean, you'd be doing the stupidest thing in the world, just trying to think I had something or involving a spin or something came to mind or trying to think of how it happened. But there's things that happen that, yeah, you're totally 100% at fault for. I don't know if I could get behind fining you for the traffic delays. I can get behind fining you, you know, if you take out a, you know, you damage a bridge, you pay for the bridge or your insurance pays for a bridge and some things like that. But I, I'm going to say, Derek, uh, that's one I sitting here right now without ever really even hearing that theory. I don't know if I could go for that's my personal. Well, think about it. We'll 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 come back to it on another episode. Go get stuck in a backup for like four hours when they close the freeway and give it some thought on a on a sunny, dry, perfect day for driving when you should be no issues being on the roadway driving. You shouldn't be causing an accident. Think about it that way. Been there. I remember one five or six years ago, Amanda, her mom, and her sister had went to Atlanta for something in the morning or how was it? Oh, they went for a concert, stayed the night, and did some shopping in the morning, and were coming back. And Atlanta to our house at the time, two and a half hours on a reasonable day. Took them almost 12 hours to get home because of an accident. And it was one of those where uh, a fifth wheel RV lost control. And and in your situation, you've closed an interstate for 12 hours. They're probably 100% at fault in it. But 
or you lost control because somebody cut you off and got away with it without, you know, I want to say without any damage to themselves. And, you know, she got tied up in it and yeah, it, it was stressful being at home, worrying about her and where they were, you know, where they were at and when they're going to get home and, you know, looking at different maps and different roadways. And I said, just stay on the interstate. It's going to be the fastest thing because all the side feeder roads. And then she was made, they made them get off on a side feeder road, which was backed up, you know, instead of being on a four lane Mm -hmm. backed up and actually six lane backed up, she was on a two lane backup. The accident cleared while she was on this two lane and traffic was flowing normally there. And that two lane probably at that, you know, let the drivers make their decisions. If you want to stay there, stay there. You know, I understand there were some people, that, oh, I'm going to take this and may, maybe you needed to go get gas or something. But yeah. And I remember one that, you know, I've been in those situations, nice clear day driving, going through DC, you know, you're on this eight lane wide highway and I'm going towards downtown DC and I'm that lucky SOB first in line that they stopped on the interstate. You know, there's a row of us and and I'm the first car there because as I'm coming up, cars are going by, but they stopped everybody to land the helicopter, load the people in the helicopter, helicopter took off 45 minute process there but then they didn't let people go. Then they brought tow trucks in from the opposite direction because there was no traffic and were able to clear the road. And three and a half hours later, you know, I was able to go. Number one, sitting there in three and a half hours annoys you. Sitting there as the first car in line. I, I, I feel sorry for anybody who's been the first car in line in any sort of traffic holdup. Because, you know, if you were there 15 seconds earlier, and this goes one of my little pet peeves. If somebody wanted to done something stupid earlier in your drive that delayed you, you know, somebody stopped at the very beginning of a yellow light, somebody hesitated 15 seconds, taken off in a green light, you wouldn't have been in that situation and cost me four and a half hours or three and a half hours. I'm one of those drivers. Yeah, I'm a little impatient. I call me an offensive driver. I'm not defensive. I'm offensive. You know, I offend a lot of people when I drive. But I'm also driving with the destination of getting to my goal and getting there in a safe way. I always look at myself as playing offense in a football field. The line of scrimmage is where I started. The end zone is, and I'm sorry, car people that don't understand sports, the end zone is where I need to score, and that's my destination. And I'm going to run that ball and try to avoid all the obstacles in my way, which is the defense, to get there. And sometimes I might uh, push the rules. I'm confused. Sorry, you lost me at uh, you lost me at some kind of sporting. Yeah, I was going to say I got, I confused Derek there with my football analogy. Right. What is the line of cribbage? What? Yeah, cribbage is a cool game. We should talk about that one time. Ah, cribbage is a great game, guys. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's get off the political crap and all that. I'm sitting here looking at your background, John. You still have the lotus up because we all know you're obsessed with lotus. But I have been working on the Lloyd microcar that we talked about a few episodes ago. Something that has always come to mind when working on, I will say only working on certain vehicles that I've worked on both in my career and and just personally, maybe side work, stuff like that. I guess the question that I'm about to ask revolves around specifically 
custom bodied, custom built vehicles. You know, I'm working on the Lloyd right now and, and I'm thinking about actually trying to do some vintage hill climbs with it, things like that, just to see what it does. Now, as we talked about on the episode with Myron, when, uh, when we had him on and we kind of did the reveal of the car, you know, he said, you never know. You might call somebody that built the car or knows owned the car for a while. And said it's the biggest piece of crap you've ever, they ever owned. And yeah, maybe it is. And I'll, I'll find out when I get it all ready to go along the way, you know, I'm thinking about the seats in it. Obviously it's a micro car. The seats are not original Lloyd uh, micro car seats. I don't remember. I've, I actually found a, somebody sent me a write up about the car and, and it had listed what the seats had come out of. Uh, again, thanks to the the podcast here and, and the social media posts we've made in some of the Facebook groups, the micro car world. Also, the windshield in, in some of the pictures, if if our listeners have looked at them, it's it's kind of a goofy looking windshield. It probably doesn't fit the sport car look of the car. So I'm playing around with the idea of finding some different seats that fit the car a little better, that allow me to fit into the car a little better, modify the dash slightly. One of the big things I want to do is look at the windshield is actually very easily removed from the car. Literally six machine screws will remove the windshield from the car. What I want to think about doing is actually building a special kind of bracket across the the cowl that will hold two Brooklyn screens, you know, Brooklyn screen style windshields. When it comes down to a custom, you know, bodied car like this, and as I say, I've worked on a few in different museums and collections, I guess for me and John, I want your input here. And it'd be great if we had some of the other hosts on tonight. Is it wrong to change the car? from the way it was custom bodied or is it right to, because it was custom bodied the way the first owner wanted it. And as that car is handed down, is it appropriate that each following owner has their opportunity to customize it the way they would want it to be being a custom bodied, custom built car? I think you have a little bit of freedom with it. What exactly was the car built for? It was built to race. No one knows. It does have a history of hill climbing or and things like that. It has a little no. bit of competition history. No. no, no, we don't. We don't know. Nobody, nobody knows the history of the car yet. We're still trying to find it out. Well, then, at that point, I think you believe the history is that it justifies being a sporty vehicle or a competition vehicle, and competition cars evolve. It doesn't matter. I mean, if we go back and we look at a Brooklyn's Bentley competing at Goodwood. It's not a Brooklyn's Bentley that was built in 1923. It's a heavily modified race car. It's hearkening back to a day that that car may have lived. I also would look at it as you're exposing that antique car, that unusual vehicle to a totally different group of people that may not go to the Saturday car show to see it you're bringing it to more people. You're going to be able to, you're going to be able to hill climb it. You're going to have conversations at hill climbs about it. And it might inspire another historic vehicle to be saved and potentially saved originally. But on the flip side, if you're not hill climbing on a Saturday, you can still go to 
a car show and display it and say, yeah, you know, it's a 1958 and yeah, we're still racing it and it's so unusual. It's going to create conversations and it could inspire somebody. Oh, you can race something like that. I don't think there's anything wrong with you continuing the life of the car. Nobody knows what the life of the car was. So you can't build it back to factory original. You can't, what are you preserving right now if you don't do that modifications? You're preserving what a previous owner did to it. Is that right or wrong? Probably not. It's not the way the car was in, in the first place. So, yeah, I'd say slap some Brooklyn screens on that. Put some uh, 50 series tires on 19-inch wheels and R-compound tires and coilovers and you'd be set. I'll go with the Brooklyn screens. The rest of it's going to stay the way it is, just new tires and see what it does. You know, the the cool thing about it, though, is everything that I want to change, and of course, coming from a a historian aspect and conservator aspect, is very easily reversible. The windscreen, like I say, it's it's six machine screws that hold the, the whole windshield on. The seats literally just slide in and out of the car. Now, that's another worry of mine with the seats that are currently in it is they're not very secure. So I want to get a more secure seating situation in the vehicle. And even I'm I'm thinking about taking the current dash, the wooden dash that is in it, taking that out and creating a little slightly different dash because my knees hit the dash currently, again, being a micro car, not the biggest thing in the world, but it literally is just bolted into place. It's it's a custom wood you know, dash that somebody cut when they built the car, put it in place. Literally, you go up underneath it. There's a few brackets, some bolts, some screws, mm-hmm. and that's how it's held in. You know, my plan would be that everything that comes out of the car will be saved and it can be returned to the way it was originally built back in the what we believe is the 1960s. I think that's kind of the right approach and kind of a cool approach to the car. I hope people like it because I think it'll, as you say, John, it'll continue the life of the car and it'll bring a slight different feel to the car for a while. You know, if I did want to take it to a car show and show it the way it was built originally, it would probably only take me a couple hours to switch everything out and put it back to what it looks like today, you know, the, or the day I bought it can be done. And to jump on that, John, you know, I don't think I've filled you in, in doing some of the research after the show, even more digging, more comparing the pictures of the car to pictures of cars of the 50s. There was a claim that the sheet metal was off of a Mercury Monarch, a Canadian built Mercury called a Monarch. And none of the body lines quite lined up when we started looking at it. And it turns out what body lines do line up are early 50, about 51, 52 Packards. Uh, If you look at the hood lines, the fender lines, you can see that it appears that it might actually have been Packard sheet metal that was cut cut down and reshaped or resized, let's call it to create this car. Kind of a a cool little twist to the story there on the Lloyd as well. It's great that you're finding information on this, this car. Uh, You know, we ran the competition. I was amazed. We had two correct answers on it. Are two answers correct enough? 
that we had to draw on it. And we had a couple that were really close. You know, it's a fascinating little thing to go through. It seems to be unusual, in my opinion, of your kind of car. I mean, the Lloyd and then the, the Chevy and the Falcon. You're kind of all over the board there. And, you know, with that C8 uh, ZR1 that you have on order, um, it's mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> your car tastes are so diverse. One of those cars previously mentioned is a lie. Yes. <laughs> Though there may be discussions in the household about a possible C8 order. We're not sure yet. It's being discussed, but nothing, nothing. Well, there's nothing stopping you. <laughs> Do you get my joke? I'm not going to justify that. <laughs> I'm not going to justify that. So let me let me twist the the question a little different way, John, because you you and I are are the two on the show that have worked in museums and and specifically have conservation backgrounds. What if it was a custom bodied car from the say nineteen late twenties early thirties, kind of the heyday of let's call it the coachwork bodies say you know like the Duesenbergs, the bugattis the i'm trying to remember all the the various cars that are, are fairly well known for coachwork bodywork you know you, i mean you had companies out there i mean in the u.s like murphy baron did a custom coachwork and then overseas you had you know fogonia falacci had the weinberger in germany and all those now what if it was one of those cars and it was in horrible, horrible condition. You found it in a, a barn or in, in the, let's say, the, a field. And the thing's in horrible condition. You know, you get your hands on it. And, and I will say, especially in, like, say, some of the European coach work, there were some over-the-top choices made, and both in color and, and interior. You wanted to restore the car, but again, going to that philosophy of it was a custom ordered car by the first owner. Maybe there was a second owner that made some slight modifications to it before it wound up in this field. And let's say you have all of the, all of the documentation, all the research is there, all the photos are there. You know exactly like what it looked like the day it came out of the coachwork company. You, you know exactly what modifications were made by the second owner to make it more what they wanted. And maybe they even had it done at a coachwork company when they bought the car. Do you restore it to one of those two configurations or do you restore it in a way that is respective of the, or respectful, sorry, respectful of the original coachwork but has a slight twist of your taste. It gets into that everybody had a chance to purchase that car or acquire that car in most cases, and nobody did other than, say, you. So I think you're entitled to do what you want with that car. I am of the mindset that the the history should be considered but doesn't necessarily have to be 100% there. Because what I'm looking at is you take, I'm going to use a a kind of a real case scenario because it's been built a couple of times and it's being built again. The Tim special, it made a lot of news uh, during last year's California fires. It was burned to the ground. That car is actually being rebuilt again. Uh, The first time it was built, they had a chassis 
and they had a rough salvageable, semi-salvageable portions of the body and built that car back to the exact specs of the original car. That's what the owner chose to do. Uh, that's what the owner's choosing to do again is build it back to the original specs, you know, sourcing everything and <laughs> thought it was expensive the first time from what I understand the second, second go around is even worse. But he would also have the option of putting whatever body he wanted on that chassis. And it's here or there. I think he's doing the right decision because historically and monetarily, that's the way to go. I'm thinking of another comparison I can use is in the Cobra world. There's been a few Cobras that have been destroyed. And I mean, destroyed to the point and they crashed in a race, burned to the ground. The car was absolute junk, but then they've been completely rebodied. As, as a Cobra, they're looked down upon a little bit and they suffer a little bit of value hurt because it's not the body the car originally was built with. But there's also another Cobra out there that was, actually there's two of them, but one of them, both of them were used as show cars and they weren't bodied as Cobras. The chassis Cobra, the drivetrain Cobra, but the actual skin does not look anything like a Cobra. And one of these cars is still in existence. And it was bodied, you know, it's bodied to be this Turin or I can't remember where it was actually shown. And it suffers because it, it's a Cobra chassis, but it's really not a Cobra. But it's not exactly what you're saying. I think you're going to take a value hit. I mean, if you take a Murphy bodied Duesenberg and, you know, I don't like it and you, you know, make it a LeBaron bodied Duesenberg, it's going to take a value hit because that chassis was built with whatever body. You need to buy one of the few remaining unfinished Duesenberg chassis. I know of at least one, and, you know, Mr. Leno's not going to part with it, but I assume there might be one or two more out there. If you're going to change that body, you're going to take a slight hit. If you're going to modify it away from what was there, monetarily, you're going to take a hit. Now, granted, we're talking a two to $5 million car and a million dollar project. So you can probably take the monetary hit, but you're going to narrow the focus of the people, the, the market when you go to sell it or your estate goes to sell it. A lot of those cars that I see that, that has happened to get rebodied as, you know, once they go, leave that owner, owners spend a whole bunch of money to put them back to the way they were. It's totally up to you what you want to do. It's a car. Anything you do to it is reversible. It's not necessarily affordably re reversible, but it's reversible. I mean, that's one thing I think that's, great about cars prior to the mid 90s is every single part on that car at one point was a block of wood developed from a block of wood you know there wasn't a lot of computer aided drafting there wasn't 3d printing there wasn't i mean somebody physically made that part or tool or body panel at some point before it was able to be produced or mass produced so yeah do what you want with it i don't have a problem with it it's not the strict museum conservator way. My preservation background's tearing at me a little bit here. But I also know some of the stuff that had to be done in the preservation world on historical artifacts in order to make that historical artifact still exist and be able to be displayed and be seen and educate. Things had to be changed about it so that it could survive in the environment that the world is now whether that be traffic or whether that just be 
the time, you know, time, certain things aren't going to stay together over time without certain other additives. So that's the long answer saying, yeah, I don't have a problem with you doing what you want with it. I left Derek speechless because he didn't think I was going to go that way. I'm disappointed in you, John. No, no, not at all. Not at all. No, it's one of the things that in, especially in kind of the field you were in, John, and, and the field I'm still in is one of the big discussions that happen. And, you know, I can use as an example, as you know, we wrap up the show, my time at Henry Ford Museum and my colleagues there, there were numerous times we would just get in a discussion about the Bugatti Royale that is at the Henry Ford. That's a car that the history is pretty well known on, uh, what it originally, how Weinberger originally built it, what Charles Shane did to it during the restoration at GMI, General, you know, the Ket, now Kettering University. Of course, he, he had the car restored at, at the college. Originally, it was black with yellow highlights. Now it's white with green highlights. Uh, the interiors have been changed slightly. You know, there are things that have been done that Shane wanted done. It's not exactly 100% what that Bugatti Royale rolled out of the Weinberger Coachworks as. You know, we would just sit and have discussions about should it be restored back to the way it was in 31 when Dr. Fuchs bought it? Or is Charles Shane with his importance at General Motors and in the automotive industry, are the changes he made to it as well important enough historically to leave it as is? Or is it a thought process of making the car look as it did in 31 on the outside and, you know, which just involves changing the paint color, doing more of a a preservation of the interior and, and the small changes that Shane made while he was restoring the car. It's one of those discussions that I don't know that it ever has the clear answer. It's, it's one of those interesting, I think, debates to get into and, and look at viewpoints. And I think, you know, for listeners that maybe are interested in, in buying a car and, you know, it'd be great if Will was on the show because, of course, he modifies everything he touches, uh, even if it's, I don't know, the smallest part on the car. It, it could probably be a bolt and he'd want to modify it in some way or like a screw. He'd be like, oh, instead of, instead of this being brass plated, we're going to, you know, silver plate it. it. When you go to production cars over, you know, custom coach built one offs, again, it's like you said, John, you know, you're the owner of the car. It's your turn to take care of the car and, and use the car, make some changes, do some things that you want to do. Unless you're one of the people that are extremely worried about winning an award at one of the Concorde Elegances or where they're looking for more authentic restorations. I've seen enough of those authentic restorations at the Concours to realize that, well, they're not even perfect. So do what you want. That's what I'm saying. Wow. So you and I, with similar backgrounds, seem to agree on that. That's I, I kind of takes me back to uh, a back, I guess is the word that you're agreeing, do what you want, customize it. And yeah, Will seems to modify everything he touches. I would imagine his wife's SUV has some modifications on it. I imagine his mom's SUV has some kind of modification on it. 
And I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm a guy that's a purist and I like the cars to be as they were originally, even down to when I'm rebuilding engines or, or having, you know, good friends of both people that John and I both know rebuild engines. You know, it, it takes some arm twisting for people to convince me whether I'm, I'm working on an engine myself or having a, a friend build it or something. It takes some arm twisting to convince me to make some minor modifications that will make the car better for driving and touring in the modern day versus leaving it as as it was, say, with, I don't know, like cast iron pistons instead of aluminum pistons to make the balance of the engine a little better. I struggle with saying, okay, go ahead and switch pistons out. Part of me is such a purist that I'm like, no, 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 no. I, I, I want the heavy cast iron pistons in it and I want the engine to wobble. I think John's already said it, you know, to each their own. And I guess in my world, I would just say, save all the original parts so we can at least document those. I'm sitting here thinking, Derek, and we're approaching, you know, one hour, so I don't want to get too deep in this. There is one vehicle I don't think anybody should ever modify unless it's to put like a, a 628 in, like we talked a couple episodes ago in that. I don't believe that the classic lines of the Zamboni should ever be altered. Do you have a feeling on that? Not the greatest aerodynamics. I mean, I guess if I was to get one, I might, depending on which one it was, I might be willing to change the vinyl wrap on it, but that's about as far as I would go. I don't think they all were vinyl wrapped. Okay, modern ones. If it's an antique Zamboni, I'd probably have to restore it exactly as it was used on the ice in whatever period it was being used. Okay, well, at least we're in agreement that the, the classic lines of the Zamboni should not be altered in any way. Just the powertrain. Correct. Thankfully, Will is not on here because he'd probably want to chop it and section it. And- no, Will and I have very similar design t- tastes as we proved in our uh, the last episode when we were all together and discussing the soon-to-be timeless lines of the new, new BMW 3-4 series car. You mean the Stellantis Charger? Now, the Stellantis Charger is something completely different. The Stellantis Julia, as uh, we posted pictures of many magazines and internet sites identifying as the new BMW. (laughs) I think with that, we've covered a few different topics here. We've probably um, upset a few people. Bored our listeners. Yeah, if they're still here now. If you are, go to the website, nodrivinggloves.com. All the links to social media is there. All the links to the subscribes there. Big pop-up window will show up when you get there. Fill out the information it asks for. We'll send you out a no driving glove sticker and possibly some additional swag. Uh, Just dropped a bunch of stuff in the mail uh, this morning from all the requests that we've had over the last week or two. And we thank everybody who's been buying us coffees. Again, you can buy us a coffee on our site too. Everything's there. They're delicious. See, we're tired. We need to be done. We're rambling. I'll talk to you uh, next week, Derek. We've got some exciting interviews and some uh, exciting shows lined up. I'm gone.